welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, as I say, welcome along to Gateway this morning. So glad you're with us. Um, Summer has arrived, it appears, at least two days in a row. So we're thrilled and we're going to call this the Summer Series. Uh, And in our summer series, we have been in the morning uh, services looking at uh, great revivals, historical revivals. Now, if you're visiting with us, um, um, just to kind of fill you in, normally in in a Sunday morning session, we are in the scriptures. Uh, We're expounding either a theme or a passage or a book. Um, The summer series is slightly different. We... We've taken um, history, really, and we're looking at historical revivals, things that, uh, that God has done down through the ages with the anticipation and in the expectation that what he's done in other days, he may well do again in ours. And that's our cry and that's our prayer. Um, thus far in our series, we have defined revival, and that day we really did look at the, at the Bible in terms of what revival is. We looked at a, a passage in the book of Habakkuk and unpacked what biblical revival might look like. The next week, um, Chris looked at the Welsh revival and told the story. Um, last week, I looked at the Great Awakening, uh, as it's called in the U.S., or the Evangelical Awakening, as it's sometimes referred to in Britain, and we looked at three major figures, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and um, Jonathan Edwards. This morning, what I want to do is pick up on something that Chris mentioned when he spoke about the Welsh Revival. He talked about the sparks of the Welsh Revival being sprayed out across the globe and lighting fires wherever it landed, and, and, and that's historically true. Actually, if you want to, you know, if this series may have created some interest for you and you thought, you know, I'd really like to read more about revival, then there's one particular writer, a man by the name of J. Edwin Orr, who really is probably um, the world's foremost authority on revival. He's passed away now, but he wrote a great deal on the subject, and in this Uh, era from the Welsh revival forward, he wrote a book called uh, The Flaming Tongue that really outlines what happens in Wales and what happened as a result of the sparks that spread around the world. Uh, One of the sparks from the Welsh revival, of course, landed on US soil and it ignited fires right across that continent. It's estimated by historians and by J. Edwin Orr that perhaps a million people were converted in the following years after the Welsh Revival. Maybe the next two years, a million people converted in the US and added to the church as a result of the revival fires that, that broke out. As part of that breaking out of fire right across the U.S., there was one that broke out in the city of Los Angeles in 1906. Now, many of you, if you've been in Pentecostal circles at least, will have heard of the Azusa Street Revival. We tend to imagine that that just sort of broke out without any kind of backstory. Well, there is a backstory to it, and it can be traced right back to Wales. But in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, Uh, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place. 
And that revival is reputed to be the birthplace of the various Pentecostal denominations, of which we are one, that have become the fastest growing religious movement of the 20th, 21st century. Uh, Many of us may be unaware of the fact that this great move of the Holy Spirit that started in Wales, broke out in uh, Los Angeles afresh, has continued pretty much unabated throughout much of the last 100 years. So through the 20th century, these revival fires have continued to burn. So much so that the 20th century has been dubbed the century of the spirit. Now, Philip Jenkins, who's professor of history and religious studies at Pennsylvania State University, commented, we are currently living through one of the transforming moments in the history of Christianity worldwide. And if the Lord should tarry, maybe in 300 years, if people are doing sermons on revivals, they will be talking about this era about the era that you and I are living in. Now, that might surprise many of you, and you could well think, well, shivers, it doesn't seem like that to me. How come I haven't heard about this? All I seem to see and hear about is how traditional Christianity is declining and how the left-leaning liberal agenda is gaining incredible traction in our culture. Now, in the Western world, and by that I mean, say, North America, Europe, Australasia, we constantly hear of, and to some degree, truthfully, are witnessing a decline in traditional Christianity. In a New York Times article in 2000, Brent Staples probably summed up the view of many when he wrote this. Visit a church at random next Sunday, and you will probably encounter a few dozen people sprinkled thinly over a sanctuary that was built to accommodate hundreds or even thousands. The empty pews and the white-haired congregants lend credence to those who argue that traditional religious worship is dying out. Threadbare congregations limp along with mounting bills and leaky sanctuaries until they can no longer afford to remain open. And Staples argued that in his, in his piece that the Christianity experiment had failed and was collapsing and would continue to do so unless it came to terms with, by which he means it embraces, liberal orthodoxies on the matter of sex and gender. And we are constantly in the West being told by Staples and Azilk that unless we get on board with the liberal LGBT sexual agenda of our postmodern culture, that we will find ourselves consigned to, and I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the wrong side of history. As an aside, and ironically, the churches that have believed that rhetoric and have become liberal and accommodating are the ones that are in the steepest decline. What these churches fail to discern is that the aversion to Christianity runs so deep in our postmodern culture that no blandishment or fawning on the part of the church is going to change that. Living as we do in the midst of that kind of environment with the voices like Staples shouting loud and clear, it's easy to believe in and begin to hunker down waiting for the final brutal inevitable body blows that will finish faith as we know it. Now this morning, I want to challenge that view by asking a couple of questions. 
Number one, is this decline as inevitable as we are being told it is? And number two, is it an, even an accurate picture of what's happening in our world? Now, this talk is going to be thin on Bible and heavy on facts, okay? And I acknowledge that right from the start. This is a history lesson in some senses, but it's a history lesson that really is tied into the Scripture in terms of what God is doing in our earth. By the way, that language that you constantly hear, unless we adopt the left-leaning liberal agenda, we will find ourselves on the wrong side of history, has a familiar echo to it if you've read much in the way of history. That was the language that the communists used to describe people who refused to get on board with their political ideology. They used to say that people who refused the communist ideology would be consigned to the dustbin of history. Well, we're a hundred years or so down the track, and with one or two tottering exceptions, it is the communist ideology that finds itself largely in the dustbin of history. And quite frankly, given the lessons of history, if I were a left-leaning liberal, I wouldn't be quite so quick to speak of the demise of the church, and I wouldn't be too quick to consign it to the wrong side of history. Such popular pronouncements always remind me of a quip by G.K. Chesterton, the Christian author and wit, who said, at least five times in history, the faith has, to all appearances, gone to the dogs. In each of the five cases, it was the dog that died. <laughs> Theodore Beza once wrote, the church has been an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. And I'm not at all convinced that Western liberal democracy is a hammer that will go even close to breaking the church. Now, you might be thinking, Don, you're just being overly optimistic. For goodness sake, look at the facts. Yes, let's do that this morning. And in order to do it, we have to step outside of the Western liberal bubble. And people like Brent Staples from the New York Times need to travel before they depict the church as empty, old, and decrepit, and then go on to prophesy its ultimate demise. Now, what Staples said, viewed perhaps from London, Paris, Amsterdam, or maybe even Auckland, pessimistic descriptions like he made may have a ring of truth to them, although you'd have to say even in those places there are notable exceptions to the description. But outside the Western bubble, the picture is vastly, vastly different. It wouldn't be quite so easy to convince a congregation in Seoul, Korea, or Nairobi, Kenya, that Christianity and traditional faith is dying out. Their biggest concern is finding premises, or at least building them, big enough to contain the 10 to 20,000 converts that they've gained in the last few years. Those converts, by the way, are mostly young in age and conservative in morals and theology. The non-Western church, which is exploding in revival in many places, is not exactly convinced by or enamored with Western sec secular, sexually liberal orthodoxies that are pushed on them by critics like Staples. Many of us in that Western bubble are completely unaware of the transformation of Christianity that Philip Jenkins says is presently unfolding in our world. I mean, what's he referring to? 
Well, over the last five centuries or so, the story of Christianity has been inextricably bound up with that of Europe and European-derived civilizations overseas, notably perhaps North America. Until relatively recently, the overwhelming majority of Christians lived in white Western nations, what has been termed the global north. I mean, if you think about what you... What, what does an average Christian look like? If you had to draw an identical picture of an average Christian person, most people would say white, Western, female, probably 50 years or older. And that would be exactly true if you were living in the year 1907. Christians at that time typically were unblack, unpoor, and unyoung. However, in the present, the movement of Christianity has shifted to what is called the global south, sometimes called Africasia. Can I have that, Matt? The, the brown portion is Africasia, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, sometimes called just by the term the global south. With Christianity moving to the global south, in order to describe the average, the average believer today, it would be much more accurate to say black, African, female, aged around 28. A map of the statistical center of gravity of global Christianity, if you could, yeah, has moved steadily south. The center moves south from a point in, uh, obviously in Palestine, then northern Italy by 1800, central Spain by 1900, to Morocco by 1970, now to a point near Timbuktu in Mali. That's the statistical center of global Christianity. It is moving steadily to the south. Todd Johnson points out that since 1980, Spanish, not English, has been the leading language of church membership in our world. And he says Chinese, Hindi, and Swahili will soon play a much greater role. And he comments, in our lifetime, the centuries-long North Atlantic captivity of the church is drawing to an end. Kenyan scholar John Mabiti says this, the centers of the church's universality are no longer in Geneva, Rome, Athens, Paris, London, and New York, but Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. In 1900, Europe was home to two-thirds of the world's Christian population. Today, that's less than 25%. By 2025, it will be less than 20%. If present trends continue, by 2025, only one-fifth of the world's three billion Christians will be non-Hispanic white. And soon the phrase, white Christian, may sound a curious oxymoron, moron, as mildly surprising as the term a Swedish Buddhist. By 2025, Africa and Latin America will be vying for the title of the most Christian continent. By 2100, it's estimated that three out of four Christians will be living in the global south. Unbeknown to most Westerners, Christian revival has gripped the global south, bringing incredible growth to the churches through the 20th century. 
In Africa, at the beginning of the 20th century, it's estimated that there were 10 million believers, which was 10% of the total population of Africa. By 2000, that was 360 million believers and 50% of the continent. That, that represents the largest qualitative change in the whole of religious history. I, I'm going to put up a, 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 just a table that gives you some nations that have been radically changed during the period 1900 to 2000. These statistics are derived from David Barrett's encyclopedia. Now, it, it, admittedly, it represents professing Christians, but, but look at the numbers. Congo and Zaire gone from just 1.4% to 95.4%. Angola, less than 1% to 94%. Swaziland, 1% to 86%. Zambia, less than 3% to 83%. Kenya, less than 2% to 79%. Malawi, from 1.8% to 76%. Those figures are stunning. We never hear about it in the West. But that's what's going on in Africa alone. When you think of the Anglican denomination, you probably tend to think of a sleepy rural village church in, in somewhere in the UK, the Archbishop of Canterbury in Westminster Abbey. It's estimated that there are 800,000 active Anglicans in the UK. Friends, presently in Africa, there are between 40 and 50 million Anglicans. In Nigeria alone, there are 9 million more Africans, uh, Anglicans than there are in the whole of the UK. And it's estimated by 2025 that there'll be 35 million Anglicans in Nigeria alone. Figures for Latin and South America are equally as staggering. If you're interested, although it is very, very dated now, Peter Wagner's book, Look Out, the Pentecostals are Coming, outlines some of what's gone on in Latin and South America. These revivals in the global south are largely Pentecostal in nature. In 1900, there were literally a handful of Pentecostals worldwide. Today, their numbers are estimated at 350 million. And they have been called by some sociologists the most successful social movement of the 20th century. Harvey Cox, who is professor of religion at Harvard in his book, Fire from Heaven, which talks about this incredible movement, notes that Pentecostalism, and I quote, is truly epoch-making. By 2000, Pentecostals were increasing at 19 million per year, every year. There will be one billion just Pentecostal believers by 2050. That's two times more than all the Buddhists in the world and equal to the number of Hindus. In Latin America, the numbers of Pentecostals in the 1950s even were relatively small. But since that time, there has been an explosion. And Pentecostals account for between 80 and 90% of Protestant growth in those areas. Ongoing revivals in Chile and Brazil and Argentina have been well documented. The Assemblies of God denomination has 15 million members in Brazil alone. The home of the Assemblies of God, the US has between two and three million. The city of Rio de Janeiro has 40 churches a week being planted. These nations, by the way, through Latin America, South America, are traditionally Catholic. The Catholics have not been left untouched by revival fire. 
and it's estimated that the Catholic charismatic movement, that's Catholics who have experienced this Pentecostal experience, uh, may number as many as 75 million adherents throughout the world, mostly in Latin and South America. Asia, of course, has experienced revival fire and phenomenal growth in the church. I'm sure nearly everyone here has heard of the Korean story. Without going into much in the way of detail, missionaries arrived in the Korean peninsula around 1590. Over the next 300 years, the growth of the church was painfully slow. And in the 1920s, there was probably 300,000 believers in the Korean peninsula. In some eight decades through the 20th century, that number has exploded to 12 million, 25% of the total population. Perhaps the greatest story yet to be fully told concerns the church in China. Prior to 1949, which is when the communists took over, it was estimated that there was possibly one million Christians in China. Today, truthfully, it is really difficult to estimate the number of believers. Government figures, which you can imagine represent the absolute minimum, acknowledge 20 million believers. That's 1.6% of China's population. The U.S. State Department has suggested it's much more likely to be 8% with 100 million believers. More recent surveys have indicated that the number could be anywhere between 100 million and 300 million believers in China. That's amazing when you consider the Communist Party in China only has 70 million. David Ackerman in his book, Jesus in Beijing, a former correspondent for Time magazine, said this, China is in the process of being Christianized. That does not mean that all Chinese will become Christian or even that the majority will. But at the present rate of growth in numbers of Christians in the countryside, in the cities, and especially within China's social and cultural establishment, it is possible that Christians will constitute between 20 and 30% of China's population within within three decades. The Christian experiment has not failed, Brent Staples. The Christian experiment is exploding in the global south. It seems that even the Chinese dragon is being tamed by the Christian lamb. We could go on and on. 62 million believers in China, 6% of the population increasing rapidly. Time doesn't even allow for us to talk about what's taken place in in Singapore, where where between 25 and 30% of the population, small as it might be, is Christian. Indonesia the Philippines, these, these nations have experienced phenomenal revival and church growth. Now, while there's no single southern Christianity any more than there's a single northern version of Christianity, there are some broad trends that emerge as you look at the church in the global south, and I just want to comment on a few of them. The first thing that we note is that among these southern churches, there are more theologically and morally conservative people. They are much more theologically conservative and thereby morally conservative than their northern brethren. One African theologian put it this way. He said, we read the Bible as a book that comes from God and we take every word in the Bible seriously. Some people will say that we are therefore fundamentalists. We don't know whether this word applies to us or not, but we're not interested in any interpretation of the Bible that softens or waters down the message. We do not have the same problems about the Bible as white people have with their scientific mentality. 
Northern theologians worry that the Southern Church has compromised with traditional paganism in places. The Southern Church is in turn accused of the Northern theologian, theologians and churches of selling out Christianity to neo-paganism in the form of humanistic secular liberalism. And I suspect they're right. Southern churches have expressed implacable opposition to the Anglo-American program of sexual liberation, and they see it for what it is, heresy. In 2005, a convention of global Southern Anglicans took place. Now remember, these these people represent two-thirds of the Anglicans in the world, and they issued this statement at the conclusion of their convention. Anglicans of the Global South have discovered a vibrant spiritual life based on the scripture and empowered by the Holy Spirit that is transforming cultures and communities in many of our provinces. We reject the expectation that our lives in Christ should conform to the misguided theological, cultural, sociological norms associated with the West. The unscriptural innovations of North America and some Western provinces on issues of human sexuality undermine the basic message of redemption and the power of the cross to transform lives. These departures are a symptom of a deeper problem, which is the diminution of the authority of the Holy Scriptures. Wow. I want to tell you, it is the southern churches that are the defenders of orthodoxy. Given their numbers, one would want to ask whose Christianity is normal. And if you're not sure of the question, ask whose Christianity will be normal in 50 years' time. And I want to tell you, it's not Western. It's not Northern. So, theologically and morally conservative. Secondly, these churches retain a very strong supernatural orientation. As Christianity has gone south, it has returned to its supernatural roots. And Southern churches are quite at home with biblical notions like the supernatural, the receiving of dreams and visions, with prophecy, with miracles, with healings, with exorcisms. Philip Jenkins again comments, if there is a single key area of faith and practice that divides northern and southern Christians, it is the matter of spiritual forces and their effects on the everyday world. For most of the global south, There is a deep connection with and a resonance at the supernatural elements of the New Testament stories. The supernatural elements of the gospel are akin to and parallel with their own worldview, especially as it relates to good and evil and the place of sickness and disease. So when they see Jesus casting out demons and healing the sick, that equates with the worldview that they already have. New Testament stories that perhaps may seem mildly embarrassing for a Western audience are read in a completely different way and with a profound sense of relevance in the churches of Africasia. An African theologian comments, a religion that speaks only to man's soul and not to his body is not true. Africans make no distinction between spiritual and physical. If the gospel you are preaching does not speak to human needs, it is useless. It cannot compete with the witch doctors and the gods. So they have embraced a supernatural Christianity, theologically and morally conservative, spiritually dynamic in terms of supernatural. Third broad trend is that women 
play a central role in global denominations in the South, whether or not they are formally ordained. It seems that women in these churches have found the place and power to speak and lead. Again, if you are familiar with the Korean story, you'll know the dynamic that women have brought to the church. Charismatic worship, Pentecostal worship, after all, places great weight on individual inspiration and prophetic gifts, and the experience and, and experience has shown that the Spirit alights where He will, on men and on women, on young and on old, just as Joel prophesied he would. David Martin, in his study on Global South Churches, noted Pentecostalism gives the right and duty to speak to those never before deemed worthy on the grounds of class, race, or gender. In the new dispensation, outsiders receive tongues of fire. Theologically, morally conservative, orientated to the supernatural, open to the ministry of all. The fourth thing is that they are severely persecuted. Religious violence and persecution has been a persistent theme in the history of the churches of the global south. For the average Western audience, New Testament passages about standing firm in the face of pagan persecution have little immediate relevance, about as much perhaps as the farmyard images of threshing grain and vine grafting that we find in the scriptures. Lots of Western Christians think they're being persecuted if they don't get the parking space that they prayed for. Some people imagine that there will be persecution, but it has to do with some end time period that they call the Great Tribulation. But for millions of Southern Christians, there's no such need to dig for arcane meanings. Millions of them, in fact, do live in constant danger of persecution, of first, of forced our conversion from governments or local vigilantes. Persecution is a very real threat for these new believers, and martyrdom is a continuing reality for many African and Asian churches. It's estimated that in Africa alone, there were 1.8 million people martyred for their faith through the 20th century. Some of you will be aware of what happened relatively recently in Darfur in the Sudan. Between 2000 and 2005, violence between Muslim and Christians exploded, and many people were expelled from the region, many people killed, perhaps uh, uh, nearing 50,000 people, mostly, mostly Christians. And for every martyrdom, every act of martyrdom, there are thousands of acts of bullying or discrimination. The notion of being brought into court to answer for one's faith is not for them an end-time fantasy. Not in Nigeria, not in Sudan, not in India, not in China, not in Egypt, not in Saudi Arabia. Now, I don't mean to suggest that all is well and rosy in the churches of the global south. You just have to travel a little to know there's a lot of error, there's a lot of deception. In many areas, they have proved incredibly susceptible to the allurement of the prosperity gospel. Philip Jenkins again comments, the prosperity gospel is an inevitable product of a church containing so many of the very, very poorest. I've heard northerners derisively speak of the growth in the churches of the global south by saying it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Well, there may be some truth in that observation, 
perhaps in former times, less so now, as Africa and Asia and Latin America are producing their own quality theologians. Even if that is somewhat true, a mile wide and an inch deep, one must ask, however, why so many shallow believers are willing to risk death and suffering to defend their faith in that region. And one also wonders how many deep northerners would be willing and prepared to follow suit. I I just want to say to you, in the midst of this series on revival, there is always the temptation to look back in history and fail to see what God is actually doing in our world right now. And as I said to you before, if the Lord should tarry in 300 years, people will be writing books about the period that you and I live in. And for many Westerners, this thought has gone completely over their head. We are caught in a cultural captivity that tells us that our Christianity is being assigned to the dustbin of history because we won't get on board with liberal, left-leaning, sexual orthodoxies. And churches are being told, if you want to be relevant, get on board. Those who have heeded that message have virtually disappeared. There is another message out there, and the message is God is on the move. And the 20th century was the century of the Spirit, and there was almost constant revival, starting from Wales, and of course there was a backstory to that, but from Wales to Azusa Street. Even through the West, there have been movements of phenomenal revival, the latter rain movement of the 40s, the healing movement of the 40s, 50s, the charismatic movement of the 60s through 80s, the, the movement that's sometimes been dubbed the third wave movement that touched vineyard churches, the Toronto church, and, and on and on it is gone. And that's just the West. So even in the West, Brent Staples' comment, the left-leaning liberal agenda regarding the church isn't actually that true. In the third world, in the global south, it's completely misguided. The church is exploding. Uh, Some of us need to hear that because I don't want to be left behind. I don't want us to be left out. I don't want our nation to be left out. It seems that in spite of the dour prognostications of a poorly traveled, poorly researched Western elite concerning the church, that God is in fact alive and well on planet Earth. And the next few decades could be the most spiritually dynamic in all of the church's history. So it's with a sense of great anticipation and expectation, I lift my head up above that Western bubble and invite you to do the same and join with me as we pray again in song Habakkuk's prayer. Lord, in our day, in our time, renew your works. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.